Let's take a look at what's happening right here in Metro Vancouver. And as you've been hearing on the news, those residents, the residents of the camp in Oppenheimer Park, as well as a camp in Victoria, they are going to be given hotel rooms to give a, be given a better chance at being able to distance, to stay safer and healthier during this pandemic. That's just one of the things we're going to talk to Trisha Barker about. She is a commissioner with the Vancouver Park Board and joins us on the line now. Commissioner, thanks so much for being with us. I'm happy to be here. Uh, how is it going as far as we're hearing that some of the residents of Oppenheimer have already been offered spaces in hotels? How is it going so far, uh, even though we're still in the early stages of this plan? Well, we've got a pretty good relationship with some of the people down there. And so as soon as this was announced, well, we'd already be in dis- been in discussions with people about getting them a safer place. So those are just really continuing on um, with knowing that we have the extra help now about where people can go to. And what happens if there are people in that camp that don't want to go? Well, that's always a possibility. And, um, you know, I I think that they will be uh, asked to move and will be moved if they won't just leave. Uh, The goal is also to get that park back for the residents around that community to have. So will it be fenced off then? Because it seems like without some kind of physical barrier keeping people out of that park, at least while it's rebuilt or rehabilitated, people will still keep coming back to it. Well, for sure, we're going to have to fence it off in the beginning because we've got to get in there and make it safe. And that's uh, going through all the grounds to make sure we've picked up any metals or anything that's there, making sure nothing will hurt people if they go back into the park. So it will be fenced off for a while, but hopefully we will have other parts of the community in that area um, into their homes and so the need to be back in that park uh, won't be as high but remember there's tents now all up and down Hastings there's um, you know it has moved out to that whole neighborhood so um, hopefully all of those people will get a place to stay also. So do the people that are not living in the park like you said there are tents on Hastings there are tents in many other Vancouver parks and parks in Metro Vancouver even the Fraser Valley Uh, but with talking about Vancouver parks do people to be part of this housing do they have to be living in Oppenheimer or can they be anywhere? I don't know the exact part about that Um, you know what who they're going to offer these places to we know about um, Oppenheimer Park for sure but I would think if the goal is to get people safe and to ensure physical distancing they're going to have to look at any of the places where people are congregating. And what happens when we start easing the restrictions and when we get to a place where people would be able wouldn't have to be housed in hotels those hotels would likely want to open up again what happens to the people at that point? Um I, I actually don't know. I know that, you know, I can tell you that, you know, once we've got Oppenheimer Park back, um, you know, the tent city wouldn't be allowed to grow there again. Um, you know, we wanted, there were so many problems with the people in that neighborhood not having any green space. So that's our main concern is being able to keep that green space for the people in that community. But how do you make sure that happens? Because there was a previous time when there was that tent city in Oppenheimer, an injunction was granted at that time. The park was cleared. There was a million dollar plus renovation of the park. And then it eventually went back to what it is today. Yeah. And we have, um, it's, we've got people living in quite a few of our parks. You know, there's tents that go up and 
it's when tent cities become big, and you'll see that, you know, over in Victoria, they have the two tent cities over there right now. It's when they start to get really big, and that's when they get out of hand, and that's when we start to have the problems. We usually um, don't see that kind of problems here, and I would think it had stayed um, available to the public, that park, for a couple of years. So we're hoping to get back to that state again. And then more enforcement uh, if a couple of tents show up or a small cluster of tents show up? Yes, absolutely. Um, I want to shift. I know it's a bit of an odd shift, but it is uh, another COVID-19 related story. And talking about golf courses and a couple of golf courses in Vancouver reopening, uh, are you confident that they will be able to do this and keep with the distancing rules and keep people safe? Absolutely. We have been working since we closed the golf courses to come up with the best practice on how to open them again. And um, there's a lot of different courses all over North America who have been looking at this. And you know what? We listened to Dr. Henry, and she talked about how to do it. And um, golfing is one of the things you can do pretty easily if you get the exact rules in place about how to golf um, and being physically distant. Uh, because there were private golf courses or some other golf courses that stayed open in other municipalities and other cities as well. They seem to have figured it out quite quickly. Yes, and we just always wanted to be very much on the safe side. For all the places we've closed down, everything we've done, we're going to look at safety first. And then if we can look at the best practices, then we can open up. We're also going to be opening up Van Dusen Gardens. Very, very, um, it's, it's going to be very closely monitored who can be in there. I think that they've got like 30 people at a time to be in there. So we're, we want to be able to get people out to our open spaces because we know how good that is for um, the mental aspect of what we're all going through right now, but also just keep people safe. And with that then, would we see the relaxation, do you think, in other areas in that it made sense that the uh, parking lots at Spanish banks, at the beaches were closed because they were so, so crowded, even though once you got there, even even now when you go there, you can distance quite easily. It's it's such a big space. Uh, you with, with a golf course, I'm imagining the, the parking space at the parking lots will still be open as golfers have to get there. Do you think there there will be a relaxation then of parking uh, parking lots so people can get to the parks and can get to the open spaces? It's something that we keep on monitoring. Um, you know, it just depends on how busy each place gets. We're still asking people to stay at their local parks. I was at Gordon Park two days ago, and it's a massive park, and there was no one there. Well, no, there was one person there flying a kite. Okay. So... Um, we want to still encourage people to go to their local parks. We have them to over 240 all over the place. Go to your local parks. Don't drive to a park. And that's keeping those um, parking lots closed certainly helps that. All right. Uh, we will leave that there. Thank you for the update, uh, Trisha Barker. Thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Fraser Health uh, just updating people in that health region about another COVID-19 outbreak or saying that it is over at Langley Lodge. That was a long-term care facility owned by the Langley Care Society. Uh, So saying that the outbreak there has come to a conclusion and they are going to be updating uh, people on the very latest in that health region a bit later today, around 1.30 today. Right now, we're going to take a look at uh, how people that uh, have pain management 
different as a regular part of their life are dealing uh, during this pandemic. When we look at services such as massage therapy, physiotherapy, chiropractic work, all of these services that are no longer available, at least not in person, some people trying to do it uh, via Zoom or other electronic ways, definitely not the same thing. Joining me now to talk a bit more about this, though, is Maria Hudspeth, the Executive Director of Pain BC, also co-chair of the Canadian Pain Task Force. Maria, thank you so much for being with us today. Happy to be with you, Jill. Um, what are you hearing from people or how are people that managing pain being a daily part of their life, how are they faring right now? Well, this is a really difficult time for the one in five people who live with chronic pain. Uh, for many people, uh, they, as you said in your introduction, they rely on a whole range of different types of treatments to live well with pain and to stave off the kind of disability and loss of function that can uh really accompany living with chronic pain. So we're seeing people have reduced mobility, increased feeling of pain, uh, just really suffering through this pandemic. The other thing about people living with chronic pain is that for many people, uh, anxiety and stress are the worst enemy. Uh, Chronic pain often becomes a disease in its own right, whether it started because of another chronic condition or a motor vehicle accident or a sports injury. What can happen is that people's nervous systems get really agitated, and that's actually the pain system in the body kind of over-functioning, if you will. The thing that processes pain in the body also processes stress and anxiety. So when stress and anxiety are at an all-time high, as they really are with this pandemic, it's effectively ramping up people's experience of pain. And that, uh, combined with the loss of access to care, is creating just a terrible, terrible situation. And what are people doing? I know I've heard anecdotally from some people that they've been meeting with their, say, physiotherapist uh, over uh, over Zoom or over a FaceTime and, and walking through it, but not nearly the same as being in person, having an in-person session with somebody. For sure. Um, there are a number of different uh, organizations, Pain BC here in British Columbia, but even other organizations across the country that are trying to put uh, group sessions online. There are a couple of the pain clinics that operate here in BC that are doing group sessions online, and some of those are covered by MSP and available to people. So there are those services. Um, it's definitely not the same for people who don't have access to technology or don't understand or technology are intimidated by it. Obviously, that's a big barrier. Then there's a whole host of other services that people often use that can't be done virtually. So if you think about people who are getting um, lidocaine infusions or uh, different kinds of injections, needle-based treatments, there's all kinds of pain procedures that for some people, you know, they're not for everyone, but for some people, these are the things that keep them able to get up, get out of bed, you know, homeschool or care for their children, care for other loved ones. So those are in many cases, not all, but in many cases, those are not being uh, provided currently. So there's another big challenge there. Right. And so what do people in that scenario do? Do they just go without? 
Absolutely. Yeah, we're hearing from many people that the loss of those kinds of services and those services are often being provided to people who, uh, you know, they've tried a lot of other things. These are more complex kinds of interventions. Some of them you know, carry some risk. So often these folks, you know, they've tried many other things and these are sort of the end of the line treatments for some people. So we're really seeing uh, some of those people suffer. Uh, And as I was saying earlier, you know, that combined with the anxiety and the stress uh, of the pandemic are uh, creating challenges for people. The other piece that not everyone recognizes is that many people who have chronic pain have underlying vulnerabilities. So their pain might be related to an underlying health condition, or it could be that they've been using certain pain treatments that are immune suppressing. So anyone who's been on uh, opioid therapy for pain over a long period of time, people who are receiving steroid injections for pain, many of those treatments actually suppress the immune system. And in a pandemic, the last thing that you want to be dealing with is being immune compromised. But again, it's another vulnerability that people with pain are coping with. I didn't realize that that being on opioid treatments or steroid treatments, I didn't realize that that suppresses your immune system. Yeah, there are a number of sort of... um, unrecognized impacts. And again, not for everyone, but for a number of people on these treatments, they can uh, create this risk. People who have arthritis is another example. Many people that uh, are living with arthritis, you know, lots of them have pain. And some of the arthritis medications or medications for other chronic conditions are also immune suppressing. So it might be that there's somebody who's living with a chronic condition, pain is a big component of what they're dealing with, and it might not be their pain treatments that are created the uh, immune suppressant vulnerability. It could be other medications that are uh, creating that. So there's really a whole host of issues here uh, for people who have pain. Do you think there is a safe way then as we start to talk about different businesses coming back online or coming back uh, to, to in some way that's still safe? Do you think there are safe ways for people, particularly people who it's a matter of whether you're getting out of bed or not uh, to get these treatments? Yeah, I think there, it's really going to be um, needing to follow the advice of, of Bonnie Henry and probably, I hate to say it, but maybe a bit of trial and error. You know, all of these jurisdictions are looking at opening in a careful way and being very watchful to see, you know, if we open this, what's the impact? If we open that, what's the impact? So I think there's going to have to be a bit of testing and maybe even stratifying uh, the patient population to say, you know, who are those patients who are so at risk of disability, loss of function, and and really mental health uh, impacts related to their pain? And can we prioritize those folks and get them treatment safely first? So I think we're going to be having to ask a lot of those questions. Uh, Unfortunately, for people who live with pain in British Columbia, the pandemic is really set against a backdrop of lack of services generally. We have not had 
uh, robust pain care system in BC or across Canada. We have a handful of uh, specialized pain clinics in our province. And when you think that chronic pain affects 20% of our population, that's one in five people, a million British Columbians, and we really only have a couple of pain clinics with very, very long wait lists. So, you know, there's the pandemic and the challenge of that. And then there's the pre-existing problem of just not having appropriate levels of pain care for the people who need it. All right. So we will leave it there. Maria, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for shining a light on this important issue. You have been hearing the stories out of Surrey. Janet Brown reporting on a video message sent to parents about the fact that the work is being done to try and figure out how schools could reopen, what that might look like. We are expecting to get a lot more information on that in BC tomorrow around noon. The education minister making some announcements or at least releasing some information. And this comes as we learn about what's happening in other provinces such as Quebec where schools will start reopening on Monday day on a voluntary basis and we've also got a bit of an update from Ontario with the premier of that province outlining his plan although not a huge amount of detail but the plan going forward the roadmap as premier Doug Ford called it earlier today as far as reopening businesses and seeing what can be done and at the same time still keep keeping people safe and making sure we don't see a spike in the virus cases. Let's bring on Jason Tetro. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He has joined us many times to talk about this. Jason, thank you so much for being available once again. Uh, great to be joining you. So what is your take when you hear about these provinces that are now starting to move forward with this look ahead or this roadmap to reopen certain businesses? Uh, Do they skip a step? Um, because initially what happens is what you have the big explosion because you can't keep up as a result of testing. And then what you have to do after that is when you get the testing in place, um, you have to essentially eliminate all the cases that you can't trace back. It's uh, essentially called test and trace. And then when you get to a point where you have that ability to be able to understand how the virus is spreading in your community, um, it's essentially controlled uh, may not necessarily be contained, but at least you know where it is, that's when you can start to uh, identify who are the most at risk and protect them and then be able to um, slowly bring the rest of the world back. The problem is is that we're still not at the particular test and trace step yet. So by all of a sudden giving us this roadmap or, or even opening schools like they're going to do in Quebec, what you essentially are doing is you are, well, first off, you're putting the, you know, the cart before the horse, but also what you're doing is you're going to make it incredibly difficult if all of a sudden when you make that first step, we start seeing these huge spikes and all of a sudden people start getting sick and we start seeing hospitalizations go up. How are you going to get them back to where they are now? Right, because that's even been, uh, the the Premier of Ontario talked about, he didn't want to be in a position where you open things up again and suddenly you have to shut everything down. Yeah, and and the only way that you're going to be able to do this is by knowing where the virus happens to be. And it's very difficult at this stage. So if you essentially don't trace every single case backwards, then what happens is that you assume that there are other people in the community who probably have the virus and are spreading it. Now, that's sort of the difference between what's happening in Ontario and Quebec and numerous other places around the world and what's happening in British Columbia and even here in Alberta, where what they're seeing is a 
um, an understanding that the virus continues to circulate, but it really comes down to how many people are popping out of that system and into the healthcare system. And when that starts to drop so that we know we're not going to get a surge that is going to take us to overcapacity, then we can start opening up. It's going to take a little bit longer, um, and it's very frustrating, the idea, at least here in Edmonton, knowing that we're not going to be able to you know, enjoy anything in a mass gathering for at least uh, the, the whole summer. But by the same respect, what it's doing is it's absolutely making sure that you don't have to walk backwards. What do you say then to uh, this quote from the Premier of Quebec? Uh, he said that the COVID-19 infection rate in the province's hospitals is under control and that the virus is generally not dangerous to young children. Well, first off, the stability of cases is really interesting because what that means is he's essentially saying that COVID-19 hospitalizations are along the same lines as people who are having heart attacks, strokes, that type of thing. It's just become one more reason to uh, try and keep beds open, but it's not actually surging. It's not taking over. And I mean, that's a risky position to have in the first place. But then what happens is he then says that because we don't have to worry about kids, we can start essentially focusing on opening the world around them. Well, yes, we know that this virus isn't doing a heck of a lot in terms of damage to the kids, and that happens to be because of the biology of the virus and how it infects people. But that still doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to have severe cases. And so what could happen is that he'll start to develop this um, you know, massive infection rate amongst the youngsters, and we're going to start to see more of them popping up into the healthcare system. But his hope is that that number is going to be low enough that it's not going to start re- leading to attacks or, or concern, and that maybe, just maybe, it'll start leading to, as, he, you know, as other people have talked about, this idea of herd immunity, which we still don't know about, um, taking over. Because there does seem to be a bit, I don't know if I'd call it a shift, but but more questions being asked, particularly here in BC, when we see these plans coming out in other provinces, when mm-hmm. we look at the outbreak in BC, and it is really concentrated to a prison and to long-term care facilities, not to suggest that that's not important, of course it is, but doesn't that, do you think that gives the general public a bit of, of, a, of, of a sense of, of they're not at as much risk because of where the outbreak is? Yes. And and to be honest with you, I mean, I live in an area of the city of Edmonton where we probably don't have the virus at all. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we should stop doing what we're doing. <laughs> so I completely understand that whole idea that um, because we have uh, we, we see these foci in different areas where you have the vulnerable and susceptible, that maybe it's not so bad if you happen to be walking within three foot feet of another person. The problem is, though, that if you start to have that mentality and then we do start to see a spike, it's like I said, it's going to be so much harder for you to all of a sudden go back to what is going on. So it's better to sort of stay the course now and then gradually with confidence be able to get back to the way we used to be rather than sort of, you know, testing the waters and then having to draw back because, you know, human behavior is the way that it is. Right. And people want to see uh, and people want rewards, right? People yeah. are saying if we've been distancing, we've been doing all of these things, we want some reward. And that reward's going to come in the form of restaurants open in some form or some way or some other restriction lifted. Exactly. And so right now we're sort of at a stage where we've been doing this. uh, I think someone was saying that this is like the sixth week that we've really been involved in this. 
And the fact of the matter is that after that amount of time, you do want to see something coming back to you. You do want to see that positivity. And more importantly, all those models that were given all over the country of these doom and gloom numbers, which were completely, you know, they, they were completely uh, based on things that were never going to happen in this country anyways. The person who came through with the real numbers was, you know, Dr. Henry with her various models that we saw a couple weeks ago. Well, the fact is, is that we're under those model numbers. So we should be expecting to get some kind of reward. The only problem is, is that we still haven't perfected the, tri uh, the testing and the tracing, so we still don't know where the virus is. So we still have to wait for the science and, and the technology to catch up so that we can eventually get that reward. And and do you think it will? Because that's also what, what many, I think, are, are, are saying as well, that maybe it's okay that we relax this or, or are expecting maybe that science to catch up faster. Oh, it will. Um, you see, the thing is, is, uh, if you look back at uh, H1N1, uh, the pandemic in 2009, I mean, it took eight months for us to be able to get a handle of this uh, of this pandemic. Now, granted, we didn't shut things down the way we had had before because of partial immunity and everything. But I mean, it, it was eight months for that. It's eight weeks for this. <laughs> and so, I mean, think about it. We've done so much already getting to where we are. And now we know that, you know, the 15-minute tests are out. We've got both genetic material testing. We've got antibody testing. All of these things are going to slowly but surely become more and more common to the point that testing for COVID-19 is going to be part of the regular testing of anybody who shows up with a respiratory illness. It's going to take a little bit more time, and I just hope that people will give it that little bit more time, even as the weather's getting better. I mean, right now would be the perfect time for it to rain in Vancouver for the next three weeks. <laughs> Which sometimes it does. doesn't I look know. like it will it's right like, now, but sometimes. <laughs> All right. Well, Jason, we'll leave it there. It's always good to uh, talk with you, and I'm sure we'll talk with you again. Thank you so much. Oh, it was a pleasure. Take care.